Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 95. This is the last of three episodes in which we listen to James Jenkins as he tells his version of how things went that night at Bethesda and truly what happened during the autopsy. Testimony of any kind was rare from Jenkins in the early years of assassination research and remains so even today. Widely seen as one of the more credible witnesses to what happened that night and one of the few witnesses who actually participated in the autopsy itself. He went on to study for his M.D. and Ph.D. This was a reasoned and educated man that was of obvious good character, and he was a man that was not given to hyperbole or exaggeration, even though it seems like that was standard protocol for more than one witness in the story of the JFK assassination. As we conclude the recollections of James Jenkins in this episode 95, I'll quickly move to summarize what James Jenkins said about the two caskets and combine that with other evidence as well, and hopefully that summary will tie together for you as a juror the many commentaries that we have wandered in and out of and where those have indicated a credible indication that the two caskets and the two ambulances actually existed. To do this, I'll rely heavily on Doug Horn's summation from Volume 4 of his book, Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. That'll contain a little bit of new information as well, and not just what we've heard thus far. And you'll hear my rendition of it in Episode 96. Well, let's get right to it and finish up this third and final episode where we hear from James Jenkins. So, without further ado, let's listen to Episode 95 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. The I have to say that, that the wound that I saw uh, and actually was well defined after the scalp was reflected back from it was pretty much in agreement with the, with the um, Parkland doctors. Uh, part, part two is this. As David lifted this the official autopsy department of Bethesda, it's a much larger wound. It's virtually the entire back of the head. Well, account for the discrepancy. It's, I think the, the statement from it was the, the entire back of the head um, is not really, I think that's a perception. The wound itself, the wound itself was approximately three, three and a half inches long, one and a half to two inches wide, and um, it was, it encompassed mostly occipital parietal, and uh, it, again, like I said, Okay. That is that is incorrect. But the, it's in the, the, 
No, no. What he state what he states in the book is that Dr. Humes described it as 13 centimeters. That's approximately five inches. Dr. Humes, I mean Dr. Boswell described it as 19 millimeters. Now the discrepancy there is, and this is purely my opinion, is that when the scalp was reflected, bone adhering to the scalp fell away and fell into the cranium, which gave the wound an appearance of being larger than it really was. I'm aware that they were incorrect. No, no, no. They witnessed it, Jim, just as you reported what you witnessed. No, no. I mean, they probably did witness it. But, uh, no, let me, let me finish this, please. Uh, you have a question? Yes. Mr. Jenkins, uh, did at any time the people that were conducting the uh, autopsy, Humes or Fink, were they ever being recorded? Did they talk into any kind of recording thing or any stenographers no. there? The only notes were the, were the notes that they took. Oh, they were written notes. Follow-up question to that. Was there a person filming named Bill Pitzer or not? Are you aware of that? I don't know if, if Pitzer was actually doing a filming or... or anything of that nature the only thing that i that related to uh, to uh, f the photographs of the body was actually an incident that i wasn't aware of why it occurred but there was a commotion back in the gallery uh later i was told that the um, one of the secret service people had taken a camera away from someone and exposed the film uh that's really all i know about uh Uh, yeah, I I knew Dennis well. We had a lot of conversations, and he actually told me that. All right. Since there were uh, two arrivals at the hospital, did any of you observe the first lady in around the hospital? I didn't. I I was only. I mean, I was totally in the morgue from three thirty to the following morning. Uh, I know nothing of what happened outside the morgue. Excuse me. Excuse me. We arrived at the hospital at after 7 p.m., all right? And based on documentation in the log that, that Dennis David, who was the chief of the day, had logged in, and based on what Jim has already stated the time that he had put down and understand that the log page was then removed the following morning, okay? But it was after. We did not arrive at Bethesda Naval Hospital until after 7 p.m. And from the time we left Andrews Air Force Base, we shadowed the motorcade in a helicopter, which never stopped, 
The same door that the first lady got into, the same door Bobby got into in the ambulance, they exited on the left side, the first lady, and on the right side, Bobby Kennedy. Okay? Yeah, let's, uh, let's get this gentleman. He's been trying. Okay. you consider that there was any interference to the medical personnel performing the autopsy by others that were not normally part of the autopsy process? My opinion is that the autopsy was being directed by Dr. Berkeley through Dr. Humes. The comment uh, concerning the surgery was actually um, Dr. Humes's observation of of the wound itself. Uh, the wound proper, which is what I consider where the bone and scalp was in, at the top of the wound there was a jagged uh, incision, or uh, for lack of a better thing, that actually ran forward. Uh, toward the front of the head, uh, it wasn't exactly parallel to uh, to the sagittal suture or the midline. Uh, it kind of followed one of the fractures in in the skull, and it, it was really ragged uh, in various places. But it seemed to have been connected with rather neat clean uh, cuts. Uh, it was Dr. Humes asked the gallery, someone in the gallery, if there had been surgery done at Parkland Hospital. Uh, he was told that no, it had not been. But it, it as we worked with the, with the body, that appeared to have been uh, several rents that had been surgically uh, connected uh, because of, as I said, they were neat, clean cuts uh, connecting the rents. And that was actually what caused the wound to um, fall open when, when it was being unwrapped and to actually go back in place. No. Now, that's not, you know, again, too, is that you have to understand, these, this is what I remember. I couldn't possibly have known everything that was going on that night in that morning. Yes, sir. I've heard that too, uh, but I can't really address it, you know, with any authority. Uh, I know that Humes, in in some of his testimonies, uh, insisted that he was in charge of the autopsy, and as far as operating the autopsy and and so forth, he was the senior uh, pathologist and was responsible for directing, but he was being directed. I could, before I let you go, 
Sure. I'm supposed to be giving you guys a break now, but I detect there's an awful lot of interest in right now. You guys want to say, that's what I'm going to okay. say. You guys want to keep going? Yeah. Are you gueis okay to keep going? Yeah, that's keep fine. Going. We got water. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Bill. No, that's that's a mistake. Okay, let me adjust. Uh, I have never, from from the very beginning, uh, Paul and I. Paul said that, that that there was a large gaping hole. Now I can I can see where he would have saw it because. The wound had a huge amount of tissue, matted hair, blood, and so forth. With until the reflection of the scalp, it was it was extremely difficult to actually identify the borders of it. It just seemed to be a big mass there. When, as I explained, when the when the wrappings were were taken off, they adhered to the head because of the serum, uh, dried blood, uh, and so forth, which caused the wound to gape open. Now, the brain that we had at autopsy uh, did not have damage that you would expect if, by comparing to the damage that was to, to the skull. To the head itself, there were other other anomalies. Considering the brain, the brain, uh, the convolutions on the brain, the gyri sulci, they they were abnormal. They they didn't look like the normal brains that we we had taken at autopsy. Uh, the gyri were flat, uh, seemed to be larger. Uh, they, the color instead of the gray that we normally saw was, had a white sheen to it. Now, tomorrow, I guess. Uh, I have, uh, worked with Dr. Mike Chesser, uh, for several years, uh, in 19, I guess, uh, not 19, but in 2015, uh, Mike had approached me uh, about the brain that he had, he had actually seen the photographs uh, in the archives. Uh, 
he believed at that point in time that the brain had been uh, had been in a uh, his statement is that it had been been in a jar with other brains uh, and fixatives uh, that would really account for uh, for the appearance of the brain uh, as as you can probably attest to. Yes. Pardon? What happened to the brain after you put it in the jar and put it in the brain room? It wasn't. It was in the bucket. I don't know what happened to the brain. Because when, when Hall and I went back to the morgue after we, after we were given the orders to make sure that we had finished everything that was necessary, the log, the morgue log was gone. The casket that that was pushed up against the coal boxes were gone. Uh, actually, it was gone before we left the morgue. And the uh, brain bucket was gone. We're going to have everybody who wants to ask, ask a question come over sure. here so everybody can hear. Okay. So if you want to ask yeah. a question, come up here, please. Okay. Just uh, before I, uh, uh, Paul uh, O'Connor told me the same thing in Florida about the the yeah. brain was gone practically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. That's what he told him personally. Same mm -hmm. thing as that gentleman said. Um, now, here's the question. He said there was a uh, quite a big uh, missing part of the brain, uh, head back here, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what about up here? What did you see there? I did not see anything there. Nothing there. Okay. No. So yeah. there's a Pruder film that shows this thing. You think was was fake? Uh, not really. I I think what. What is there was a there was a flap on the side of the head that in flat. one of the photographs is actually extended out. I think, uh, in my opinion, that flap was was actually fractured uh, skull and so forth prior to uh, Doctor Hume's making the coronal suture. I mean, incision in order to remove the brain. Which freed that that up to allow it to to be flexible to move out well, in the, and out. In the Zapruder film, though, it shows the flap going like this. Uh, it you know, it's like a this going this way and that going that. I mean, it, that's in it the Zapruder film. It, I, well, I'm I'm not sure. That's my interpretation. Did you see the Zapruder film? Yeah, I have, oh. and I my interpretation was, or what I assumed was, that it was the flap that was was. Uh, separated and but it actually went back because when the body uh, we first saw the body the flap was not I didn't see the flap there Okay. and it wasn't until actually to be honest with you I never saw the flap in that position uh -huh. that is shown in the photograph Okay. and uh, let me address the thing of, of brain and no brain I believe Paul I believe the two uh, people, but I also believe that that even though they were sincere in what they said, I think it was it was it was more or less a shock effect in their perception. Now, I also I guess I will go on record as saying this. I do not believe personally that the brain that we took 
An autopsy was the president's brain. And I also would like to explain why. First of all, the brain uh, had an unusual appearance. Uh, uh, when I first talked to David uh, Lifton, uh, I told David, I told Harry Livingston the same thing. The first thing that flashed through my mind, and this was to my mind, was this uh, you know, a, a female brain. Now, out of all of the studies that I have, uh, have participated in in the graduate uh, programs that I was in, uh, I searched to see if there was a difference. I never found anything. So it wasn't until I talked to Dr. Chester, who is a neurologist and very much into this, uh, that the po a possible explanation for that was presented to me. And uh, when he told me that he felt like that the brain appearance was the appearance of a brain that had been infixative along with other brains for a period of time which caused the, the flat uh, area, he also said the brain was very uh, asymmetrical. Uh, that was the first time that I, I had a logical explanation for what I saw. I based that, uh, and I base the fact is that I now do not believe that that, that was the president's brain. Second is in the autopsy, the official autopsy report, the extensive damage that's reported in that report, uh, in the second area, uh, are the supplemental autopsy, which is specifically a autopsy of the brain after it's fixed, was not the brain that, that we took at autopsy was not that extensively um, damaged. Because if it had been damaged, as extensively as was reported in the autopsy with such fine detail, then there would have been no reason to infuse that brain because, because what, what would have occurred, the formula would just run out because it was da damage to uh, the superior uh, sagittal canal for better. And that's, that's the collection point for basically the vascular system in the, in the body. We would have been just as well off dropping in in the bucket. Uh, we would have had, because there would have been a vast amount of internal tissue and so forth that would have been exposed directly to the formula. So those are the two things that I, that I use for myself to say that at this point in time, I do not believe that the brain that we took that autopsy was that of the president. I do believe that the supplemental autopsy, uh, and I agree with, with Doug Horn, there were actually two supplemental autopsies on separate, uh, one on separate, uh, each on separate brains. Uh, 
we know that from testimony that was the uh, record review board that Dr. Boswell, Dr. Humes, and uh, Mr. Stringer attended one. Uh, Mr. Stringer says that he did coronal sutures, placed them on a, a viewing plate, and took photographs. There was also one, Dr. Boswell, Dr. Humes, Dr. Fink, and a, an unknown photographer attended. And Dr. Humes, in his supplemental autopsy, described a vast amount of damage to the brain. I mean, extreme amount of damage to the brain. But he also said that in a supplemental autopsy, they didn't do sections in order to uh, preserve the brain in total. So those are two contradictory uh, reports uh, on, on two uh, separate uh, auto are actually brain autopsies, which are supplemental autopsies. Okay. Thank you. Jim, um, I've been lucky enough to have lunch with you and Hubie, but uh, my question would be, and I'm not disputing you at all. Well, but I, I understand. There is, in the book, I did not avoid these controversies. I actually put them in because I want you, the reader, to make your own determinations about this. Uh, you know, it's a lot of it is perplexing to me also. Uh, there were, uh, with Hubie, uh, our, when, when I first met them, and they, they found out that when they brought the casket in, we were already uh, proceeding with the autopsy. Uh, it was, you know, it was shocking to them. But they provided valuable information to clarify some of the gray memories that I had, uh, or partial memories that I had of, of a casket being brought in other than the one that the present was in. So, uh, that was the one that was pushed up against coal boxes. My question, Jim, is sure. again, I'm not disputing you, yeah. but when you just testified that there were no bullet fragments or anything that you saw on x-ray, um, my question is, I also knew Dennis David, as you guys all do, mm -hmm. and Dennis David supposedly had metal fragments that he admitted into evidence that was later taken out, just as the same as it was with the uh, uh, timing of the log taken out the following day. So where were those metal uh, fragments from? Uh, the metal fragments were brought into the into the morgue somewhere late in the autopsy. They were in a, it's similar to a Ziploc bag, except it has a twist tie on it. In a small bag, there were metal fragments, and they were also bone fragments. Uh, they were small. They were measured in millimeters. And those fragments during the autopsy, Dr. Humes, Dr. Fink, uh, tried to fit those into some of the niches that were in, in the wound itself. Was not very successful. There were no, or, well, 
I'll say, I saw no medium-sized or large bone fragments in the morgue with the exception of those. Dennis, uh, actually those uh, metal fragments that Dennis, that Dennis, pardon me, Dennis uh, brought in were the, were the ones that, that were brought in and placed at the right ear of the president on the table and were later, uh, there was an attempt to see if they fit within the structure. Uh, this, those are the, those are the, are the fragments that Dennis is, has talked about. Um, well, maybe. Well, I can only assume that, I mean, from the description that, that Dennis gave me and so forth, and from what I saw, uh, I can only assume that, that those were the same fragments. Those fragments were given to, uh, Jim Seibert, uh, one of the FBI agents, and they took them to the lab. Yeah, hi. I'm wondering if any of you uh, gentlemen have any insights or observations about Lieutenant Commander Pitzer and his subsequent murder. I, uh, uh, he, well, if you go back and you read the reports on Pitzer, uh, it, they came to the conclusion that he committed suicide. Um, so we, do, we don't... The, the reports all suggest that he committed suicide. However, Dennis David, to the end of his days, was convinced that that Bill Pitzer did not commit suicide, and it was because he had film uh, of the autopsy uh, that Dennis said that he looked at uh, one day, a couple, three days after uh, the autopsy that Bill was running through a hand crank machine and so we just don't know. That's part of the bigger mystery. Thank you, gentlemen, for your service. I'd like to say something about the Yes, please. Yeah. Right. You can, uh, there are some incidents I'd like to explain. In the pathology, uh, well, I'll put it this way. The, uh, there is a report, you know, they did a paraffin test on the hand. Now, they couldn't, you know why they couldn't use the paraffin test? Because there was too much flesh, blood, and hair enmeshed in it. In other words, the hand had been damaged severely, so they couldn't use it. I mean, you pull that paraffin and you've got macerated flesh, it pulls it off. That's not a normal hand. Now, the widow wanted to get the wedding band and sent a relative to get it. And we have a report that, um, according to Mr. Eaglesham, whose work I do not uh, ex uh, accept, he said the relative went over there and forgot to go and get the, the wedding band and came back and made up the story that the man's hand was totally, nor uh, you know, it's messed up so they couldn't get it off, as if a relative would tell a widow such a thing, such a horrible thing. On the other hand, Mr. Eaglesham has autopsy photos showing both hands looking just fine, but you cannot see them unless you get an appointment. All right? I've ex examined Mr. Eaglesham's work. He is a former biochemist who somehow thinks it's more, more profitable for him to these days to write freelance writing for people. 
and I wonder for whom. So we don't get along very well. And I do not believe that uh, Mr. Uh, Commander Pitzer committed suicide and also chewed up his hand first. Okay. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for your service. Uh, this is my first conference. I'm new to the Kennedy deal, relatively new. Question for Jim. Uh, Earlier you mentioned that you thought maybe Admiral Berkeley, who was Kennedy's private physician, was leading the autopsy in some way. Do you believe that he, he was pro-Kennedy or was he complicit in this in some way? Um, I really don't, I don't really know. I, that, I think that he was uh, directing the autopsy uh, following directions from from the Kennedy family and probably from Bobby Kennedy. Uh, there was a reluctance when we first began the autopsy, we were only going to do the head and upper thorax. When there were no fragments found in the x-rays, Dr. Fink and Dr. Humes uh, almost insisted that we do a full body x-ray because uh, as the lady uh, doctor here knows, in forensics, uh, the bullet can be anywhere. So we actually did, we actually started the full body um, autopsy before we had permission to do it uh, at Dr. Humes and Dr. Fink's uh, insistence. Uh, just in support of the um, the other brain I was reading in the last year, it was the x-ray, the man who, I don't know if it was Stringer or uh, um, the other man, but um, the underneath photo in the National Archives, he said he never took that. There was never an underneath, and I don't know what the word is for that, but it was an interesting yeah. word. Yeah, uh, uh, Mr. Sing, uh, Stringer uh, actually said that he never took any photographs of the underside of the brain, uh, the basal side. And yet, the photographs in the archives. Now, Dr. Uh, David Mantic and, and Dr. Uh, Michael Chesser have both been allowed in to the archives. Uh, I have made two attempts to get permission. I've been denied both times. Uh, first thing to the Kennedy lawyer that controls the deed of gift, uh, I do not meet the criteria. Uh, the criteria is quite high. You almost, well, you do have to be a physician and you have to be a well-written, uh, known physician. And even at that point in time, there's always an if factor involved in it. And like with Dr. Chesser, who is uh, a neurologist, uh, uh, teaching neurologist, uh, uh, well-known in, in his field in the area where, where he practices uh, at university, uh, actually Baptist Hospital in Little Rock, he's uh, involved with the university there. Uh, he 
had requested. And he actually had to submit his request several times before he was allowed in to view the x-rays and the photographs. Dr. Mantic, uh, of course, has been in a few times. I think he's been in nine times, but that was in the early years. Uh, I think, and, and I don't really, I think the last conversation I had had with he and, and Dr. Chester that uh, he had requested permission but had been denied uh, recently. The, um, it's, it's, an, it's an extremely uh, frustrating thing to be asked questions about the photographs uh, and so forth and not be able to view the original photographs that are in the archives. Um, this, you know, and this is, this, like I said, this is a situation. Uh, Dr. Mantic and Dr. Chester have both tried to get me into uh, the archives. Uh, I requested permission from um, my local congressman. He was unable to to actually get permission for me to go in, into the x-rays. Uh, this is not an unusual type of situation. Uh, I wanted to return to Bethesda uh, to verify or answer some questions uh, about the morgue, its present location, what had occurred, and things of that nature. We weren't able to do that, too. Yeah, and, and, but we were unable to do that also. Uh, this is a, this is one of the situations that, has, that the researchers run up against. Uh, these things are sequestered. Uh, Paul and I were never called to actually testify before any of the government inquiries. Uh, we were only, uh, required to give a deposition for the House Select Committee, which turned out to be a fiasco. Uh, we were, the Record Review Board, they were not allowed to contact us. So it's, and then after the House Select Committee, uh, supposedly uh, all of the records, or most of the records were to be uh, released to the public with the exception of mine and Paul's, which was put into another 50-year sequestration, uh, was only released because of, I think it's, a, I'm not sure what the act is called, but the act established the, the uh, Record Review Board. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Jenkins. Please show me with your hands on your own head where the entrance wound for the large exit wound and where the large exit wound were exactly. I can show you where the wound is. The wound is approximately in this area. Okay. In the occipital, parietal, and as I described earlier, there was a more of a fracture line than anything that formed a tail that came down and touched on to the prior, uh, the temporal area here. The, uh, 
the wound here was a small wound that I can only tell you what what I left the morgue uh, thinking or feeling that I had seen two actual wounds uh, during the autopsy. We were told that the throat throat wound was actually uh, an emergency uh, tracheotomy and not to bother with it. Um, that was the wound that Dr. Perry said he did the, the um, tracheotomy over. I went home the following morning thinking that uh, the president had been shot from the right front with an exit wound in the back of the uh, posterior portion of the, of the head, and that he had also been shot in the back, uh, primarily between the shoulder blade, which is the scapula, uh, at the top of the scapula, uh, halfway between that and I think that's two, T3, T2, uh, which is the vertebra there. Um, that wound was probed. Uh, when it was probed, it actually went downward at approximately a 30 degree aim, uh, angle. And the depth of it was, Dr. Humes could, could probe the depth of it with his, his little finger. Now, Dr. Humes had large hands, right? but he could actually probe the depth of that wound with his little finger. Uh, they began to probe it with, with a metal probe, which was basically a flat probe on one end. Uh, it went to kind of a bald point on the other end. Uh, Dr. Fink expressed, uh, the, his concern that they may create a false, uh, entry into the pleural cavity. And they went to a sound. Uh, a sound is a type of probe. It's, it's almost like a metal catheter. Uh, it's rounded on one end. I was hesitant to kind of melt those together because I wasn't sure. Uh, the information that I, I received from Hubie and the others uh, gave me the ability to at least believe that uh, the caskets the, the particular casket was the Dallas casket. And uh, this, this is the situation. Let me take some more questions then. Yeah, Jim, just a quick two-part question uh, relates to what you're saying now. Um, were you allowed to review over your deposition from the House Select Committee? And if you were not... Uh, at the time that you did it, were you given a chance to review over it and sign it before they put it away for 50 years? No. Uh, actually, I never saw the deposition uh, until really the uh, record review board. And then someone sent, sent me a copy of it. Uh, it was, there were a lot of it that was that totally made no sense and then it seemed to it, the whole process was argumentative uh, and 
it was a process where they would ask me a question, I would tell them, and they would tell me, well, that can't be right because so-and-so said this. And uh, quite frankly, toward the end of the interview, uh, I, I terminated the interview and went back to the, to the graduate school where I went back to my office. Uh, at the very beginning, I was contacted and told that I would, that these two people would, would show up at my home on such and such date. Uh, they wanted to discuss my uh, participation in the JFK. I told them at that time I really wasn't interested in getting involved in that or reliving it. Uh, then I was told that that was a mandate from Congress to establish the House Select Committee and that I was required to do that. At that time, I said, okay. And, uh, and actually, I found out through a uh, local uh, representative, our senator, Thad Cochran, uh, his office actually... Uh, call to verify that it was a uh, federally mandated committee, so forth. And then he suggested that I meet with him in his office, which we did. Thanks, Jim. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but we've got to wrap it up. These gentlemen have been speaking for over two hours. Oh. If you want a round of applause, please. Thank you. Come on, we can really give them a lot more than that. They give a lot to us. Thank you for listening to episode 95 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.